Welcome to our Thought Leadership Interview Series. I'm Brandon Cooper, the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Nicole DeSantis. Nicole is an experienced bank regulatory and corporate transactional attorney, experienced in both consumer and institutional contexts, currently serving as the Deputy General Counsel for the Rabobank Group. Rabobank is a Netherlands-based international bank with a focus in the food and agricultural industries, and also has a wholesale office in New York City and a 100-branch retail bank in California. Nicole has strong experience in multiple regulatory, privacy, and vendor management initiatives, and she's spoken previously at many vendor management conferences. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Brandon. It's great to have uh, such an experienced person joining in today. I know you have a wide range of experience, not just in vendor management, but in all sorts of facets of regulatory compliance and most notably recently, I guess, in, as we were talking prior to this, uh, in GDPR and the new California Privacy Act as well. But narrowing down for just a moment on uh, third-party risk management, from your perspective, how do you think financial institutions are doing overall? From my, and again, as you just prefaced correctly, Brandon, I'm, I'm kind of a Jill of all trades. So vendor management, our third-party risk management division is just one of the divisions I support. But I, at least for one, since I am the primary uh, contact in legal for Rabobank, supporting vendor management, you know, there have been so many rulings and supplemental guidance from the OCC and the Fed in recent years that to me, and, and I've certainly had this confirmed by the conferences I've attended, most banks, both big and small, definitely have third-party risk management on their radar. And now fourth-party risk management, again, because at least in the U.S., there have been so many rulings coming from the regulators on what they expect to see um, in clauses and contracts and, and just the general relationship with vendors and the general understanding that banks have that just because you outsource something, which is becoming very popular, of course, always as a cost-saving measure, doesn't mean the bank is off the hook and not responsible anymore for the vendor. I think that basic concept is definitely understood by uh, banks big and small. Well, I, I totally agree with you, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I often use that phrase that you can outsource pretty much any product or service, but at the end of the day, you really can never fully outsource compliance because at the end of the day, the uh, responsibility comes back to the financial institution. It doesn't fall squarely on that third party. Absolutely, and, and you know, like, and, and we met, you know, through one of the vendor management conferences, Brandon, as you recall probably, and I've been impressed with, the smaller banks and companies I've met, too, that are on top of this subject matter and know that they have to have sophisticated, uh, you know, risk um, analyses they do of the vendors, uh, including, as you just as mentioned earlier, too, data security and privacy and really asking the questions of the vendor of how they expect confidential information to be protected. Um, and I've been impressed, at least, with the conferences I've gone to of how on top of this area a lot of companies are. Yeah, I think it's born of necessity over the past couple of years, certainly. You know, besides following regulatory guidance really closely, what other best practices do you see out there in managing risk currently? I think one of the best practices that can apply not only in vendor management but a number of disciplines in banking is some of you out there or all of you out there may be familiar with the three lines of defense model that basically all of the regulators are following in which the line of business is the first line of defense, the people within the company who bring in the money 
And then you have the second line of defense, which would be like us, legal compliance, risk management. And the third line of defense is always audit. Um, but because so many of these risks, it, it happens, risk happens when it first comes in the door. And the person that's going to know that is on the first line of defense, the business line. And so I see that awareness being increased. Not like I said, not just with vendor management, but I've been working a lot on privacy, as I told you, regulation W is a regulation I've touched on a lot. And sometimes it's really just making your business people aware, especially like in a vendor management context, hey, you know, you're responsible for choosing this vendor, for knowing what the risks are, for being familiar with them, for doing certain checklists. Um, and that's always the best place to start when it comes to managing risk is, is before it even reaches the second line of defense or audit. You know, having those business line people be aware of what it is that that they have to be on top of. That's right, and and I'm glad you made that point because I I have been an evangelist for the three lines of defense for quite a while now, and and you know I like to tell the business relationship owners that you have just as much responsibility for managing risk. In fact, in a lot of ways, you have the first visibility of uh, some factors of risk that I, in the second line, may never know about unless you bring them to my attention. So I, right. I, really, I, I really love that concept. You know, one of the areas I've been getting a, a lot of talk recently is cybersecurity. You know, how, how concerned do you think the average bank or credit union out there should be with cybersecurity nowadays? And yeah, not just cybersecurity. You know, I'm, I'm based in New York and the Department of Financial Services, as some may know, came out with a cybersecurity regulations. Um, there's also the FFIEC guidance on the national bank level. Um, and so there's plenty out there on cybersecurity, including how banks have to have a cybersecurity and privacy officer now. They want people on the board of directors that have specific expertise in it. In this area, I still think it is sometimes misunderstood as, oh, that's just the people in our IT department you know, the tech geeks that cover this for us. And I think in this area, you have to have this cybersecurity and privacy and data expertise, not just in your IT department, but in senior management, um, not only for the regulatory guidance, but, but just to have a risk managed properly. Management has to understand this isn't just, uh, again, a technical component, an IT component. Somebody in the back office has to get it's an awareness that senior executive management has to have because if there is a data breach and management was not on top of it, I mean, that's one of the worst disasters that can happen, especially if it's a publicly traded company with the board of directors, they, there wouldn't be an excuse for them not having you know, awareness of that. So unlike general vendor management, where I think banks pretty much get the fact that they have to remain responsible when they farm something out with cybersecurity, sometimes I still get the sense uh, again, I sit in legal, you know, and, and it's ironic you asked this, Brennan, because even this week I signed up for a practicing law institute seminar, and I think it's entitled How to Think Like a Lawyer but Talk Like a Geek. <laughs> <laughs> and and I signed up for it myself because, okay. you know, it's important for me as a lawyer, as a second line of defense, to really understand what the issues are from the technical side. Sure. So, Absolutely. yep. Yeah, it, it, and you know, I'm glad you made mention of the NYDFS uh, uh, regulation as well, because that I think kind of sent 
a shockwave to an extent through the industry because, again, they're all, they've always been aggressive, but these were fairly sweeping standards that, that have rolled out and have caused a lot of, you know, other states, I think, to take notice and think about, you know, should we implement our own standards for, uh, you know, for around cybersecurity? Right. Overall, do you feel like risk management gets enough attention at the senior management level and the board level? And, you know, what sort of steps do you think they can take to better demonstrate their level of involvement? And you know where I think, to answer this question, I think that depends on the sophistication of the company's corporate governance structure. Sure. Because I think it really comes down to, you know, how many committees the bank has, making it clear in your corporate governance documents and the charters you write, what are the committees responsible for deciding? When do they have to seek the authority or the approval of another committee? And I deal with this every day. There are some times where we have two different lines of business not agreeing on a certain approach, and it has to go all the way up to the executive team or the executive board to be the decision maker. And how do we know it has to go that way? Because we have it written into our corporate governance structure. Um, so, and corporate governance is, is another area where sometimes, kind of like the cybersecurity, I find some companies are very well developed with it. Obviously, like the banks that have been around for years and years will have a very sophisticated, very matrixed one, but a very sophisticated one. But sometimes uh, smaller companies don't pay as much attention to that. You, you can get very easily into a habit of just, there's tons of meetings happening all the time, but what is really being decided in these meetings? Where does the buck stop? Right. What does somebody not have the authority to do? So if that's made clear in, in committee charters and that sort of thing, like the difference between a working group and a committee, the difference between a working group and a committee and a subcommittee, you know, there's at least, I think, it, it behooves any organization to put a lot more attention on the, the form that way because that's what's going to dictate how do you know when you have to raise it to management. And frankly, that's how management even knows when it's their responsibility too. Um, right. I feel like corporate governance, even though sometimes people think of it as maybe more of like a superficial structure that's there, it really is almost like a tail wags the dog in a good way. Because I feel like sometimes when you have that skeletal outline in place of these are the committees, these are what they can decide. This is when they have to elevate something to another committee or a senior leader in the organization. Then it all kind of starts falling into place for both the business line and the second line and the third line, you know, of how it works together. So exactly. I'm a big fan of corporate governance. <laughs> I, I am as well, because I, I do think it helps just set clear guidelines. I, I like to, you know, kind of use that analogy. If you don't go into uh, to play a football game without knowing the rules, it, very similarly, from a governance perspective, you need to know, you know, who, who's calling the plays, who's calling the shots, and who gets to make the ultimate decisions on a lot of things. And I agree with you. It, it, a lot of times people call it, you know, they say this is just overly bureaucratic. And, and I just frankly disagree with that. I think there's a real need to have structure around these things so that there isn't this guessing game that goes on or a power struggle or somebody over, in it, almost inadvertently overstepping their authority. So I really do like when it's really well laid out that says, okay, here's here's who has the authority to do this, here's why, here's who sits on this committee, here's how frequently they meet. I think the more detail you can get into, uh, you know, the better off generally you're going to be. Well, not only that, too, I totally agree, but regulators increasingly want to see who is accountable 
Sure. And, you know, a bank or a company may be able to show them, oh, we had tons of meetings on this. We're on this issue. We covered it. But if the governance structure isn't clear enough to identify who ultimately was responsible for this decision, you know, because the regulators are going the other way. They're, they're implying, you know, applying now, like chief compliance officers, for example, having them personally liable. Right. <laughs> uh, board of directors having them personally liable. So I think the governance structure, even though it might be scary sometimes for an organization to, you know, really implement, the, but that's what it's about. If you're making decisions like that, especially if you're publicly traded and have shareholders to account for, you ha you should be willing to go on the line and say, I am accountable for this decision, good or bad. I, you know, I'll take responsibility for it. And I also see that happening just in, in different cultures in different organizations too, not just in these vendor management contexts or cybersecurity contexts, but in a culture, cultural context as well, accountability, uh, making sure that, you know, a well-oiled machine isn't just about having a whole bunch of meetings all day. And at the end of the day, you could say, well, I was busy. Look how important I am. I did 10 meetings. But what did you really decide? And what are you willing to stand on the line for and say, this is what I stand behind? This is the decision we made, you know? So to, to that question, yeah, regulators like to see the accountability too, which comes from governance again. Absolutely. Do you see any flavor of relief coming in the short term, not just in terms of general regulatory relief, but any of this proposed regulatory reform that's going to trickle down and suddenly make the compliance officers' jobs a lot easier? I freely confess. I certainly don't see it. If anything, I see it going the opposite way right now. Yeah, and you know, that's kind of, it's an interesting question you asked, because there have obviously been, as people I'm sure have kept up with in the news, Volcker has been walked back a little bit. The stress testing, capital stress testing, liquidity rules are less onerous now in some contexts. But again, kind of like the first question you asked me, Brandon, too, on how are financial institutions doing with third-party risk? I think there have been so many stories, you know, horror stories actually you read about, right? Consent orders, um, DOJ investigations, um, fines for executives, especially in the BSA AML space, that it's organizations like third-party risk management, they have no excuse for not being on top of that now. And so it may be that some of these regs and laws are not as onerous as they used to be, but at the same time, because I think there's been so much awareness in the world of all the things that can go wrong in different contexts, I don't think companies have the excuse anymore, you know, for saying this, we, we tried our best, but we just didn't know. Right. You know, there are so many incidents now where regulators expect it. They sure. would, you know, it, it's been, it's such a familiar concept now. Uh, they would expect that banks have sophisticated um, systems in place to deal with that, appropriate resources and employees, um, even though everything it seems like is turning more to a risk-based approach, depending on the size and complexity of the company, it still doesn't excuse the company from having to be aware for having sophistication in all of these different areas. And that's where, at least for me, it seems like you can't go a day nowadays, or it seemed like that for a while. I don't know how you felt, but you would look at the headlines and bank after bank, right, with a sanction for BSA AML, especially. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I don't find that demand going away. <laughs> if anything, I think they're just going to take for granted now the regulators. Well, of course you have to have BSA AML done properly. Where have you been? You know, I don't see that ever letting up, even if the regulations do. Absolutely. And, you know, just finally on the GDPR topic, you know, now that GDPR has, you know, gone into effect as of May, what what changes do you foresee being implemented at, at U.S. organizations regarding it or third-party risk management? I mean, any final thoughts on that? Oh, boy, the GDPR is quite a monster. <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you, actually, what, you know, what I think U.S. organizations have to be aware of is, unless the attorney or in-house legal or compliance, unless they're admitted to practice law in Europe, ultimately you can't render an opinion on what is a European Union regulation. Um, so what I can tell you from my experience in working for two different um, foreign-owned large financial banking organizations in my career is there is such a world of difference between how European law works um, and the United States justice system, it's very different. And the lawyers in-house in Europe, I have found, have a slightly different role than even the lawyers in-house at a U.S. bank. And um, that, I think, is, is the largest challenge, is a, you know, a U.S. lawyer or even just a, a business person could look at the GDPR and say, oh, it means this. But we really can't say that. If, you, if you're not admitted to practice in Europe, it is a European Union regulation. There are some outside councils who would say it's an extraterritorial law and Europe cannot possibly enforce it in the U.S. But then I've, I've seen other opinions where they state they can do that. Um, it, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of gray area. And I think companies have to be careful of what they conclude because you're dealing with a completely different regime in Europe and a, and a way they approach things. Um, and yeah, GDPR is is going to not go away. <laughs> right, certainly um, not. It'll remain to be seen. Will any European regulator ever come to the U.S. and issue a fine for a, you know, in, from an extraterritorial perspective on a U.S. company uh, for not following GDPR? I don't know. I think we're all waiting to see that. You know, I think there's been talk out there that Europe is really only interested in the really big fish like Facebook and Google and right. these large organizations that have a lot of data of consumers and they're not going to go after mid-sized banks in the U.S. that forgot to anonymize their data, you know. Um, but it remains to be seen because it's, it's one of those laws like what uh, was called FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. I was involved in that a few years ago at my organization. That was extraterritorial as well from the U.S. perspective. The U.S. telling the world, you have to abide by FATCA. And, you know, this is the European Union saying the world has to abide by GDPR. Whether right. it's really be enforced that way or carried out that way, I think we're all waiting to see. Um, because I'm, I'm sure you've seen, too, on LinkedIn, you know, there are still some statistics even now that say only 50% of the companies are GDPR ready. You know, if you really look at all the requirements that GDPR imposes, it's very onerous, and, and it can be extremely, almost impossibly onerous, depending on where all the different locations you have customer data in your organization. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I believe those statistics when they say a lot of companies still aren't fully compliant. 
with GDPR, especially the smaller companies. Um, one thing that's interesting about the GDPR, which I've always kind of mused about in my head, is you know you have to be offering products or services in the EU to European residents, and um, that could apply even if you had a web-based business, right? Picture a, a person selling brownies or cookies from their kitchen, but they make their website available and and they fulfill orders to European residents. Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, that's what's really interesting. Do I ever think it would come up in a regulatory context where that, you know, um, Sally's Bakery is going to now get a fine <laughs> because they weren't compliant with the, all the data requirements? Probably not. But um, that's what's interesting about the GDPR, though, is that it can apply in a lot of common contexts that otherwise people wouldn't think of that, that they're subject to it. Right. Um, and just as I'm sitting here telling you about my knowledge of the GDPR, just so you know and everyone knows, and I know you say you have this disclaimer, but these are my opinions. I'm not practicing law or giving advice of Rabobank or as a lawyer, but this is just my layman's, laywoman's opinion, you know, on, on GDPR. Sure, and I appreciate that greatly. Well, Nicole, this has been fascinating and, and very, very helpful. I'm sure a lot of our folks will get uh, a, just a tremendous amount of knowledge out of this. So. Any final thoughts uh, for today's session? I don't have anything to add. These were good questions to ask, Brandon, so I really appreciate you thinking of me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been a good discussion. Absolutely, and look forward to the next conference that we're at together. Well, thank you again, Nicole, and thanks to everybody for listening in on today's session. I do encourage you to be on the lookout for future interviews in this series. Thanks so much, everyone. Hey, thank you.